You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and you're listening to Mushing Radio and we are talking to my co-host Tony. And tonight we're talking about the Goose Bay 150. It is an Iditarod qualifier, probably one of the smaller races in Alaska in terms of qualifying. It is an interesting one for sure. I know Tony doesn't know a whole lot about this race, but I have a pretty interesting story about it when I ran this race a few years ago that I want to share. So the Goose Bay 150 literally is ran by a husband and wife team that own a little bar down on Connick Goose Bay Road, uh, the the infamous road where the Reddington (laughs) crew is and a whole bunch of mushers are down that way. It's sort of like the mushing superhighway down that way. It leads right into the Iditarod Trail. And I know we've talked about on this show, there is a sign right there about, I don't know, 12, 15, 20 miles or so that says Gnome with an arrow that is pointing that way. And and that is literally why that's there. You could take that trail if you hang a left right to Gnome. And this Goose Bay 150 follows that trail. But this is such a small race that it typically does not garner the attention as even some other smaller qualifying races. Typically, the field is pretty small. I don't know exactly who is entered into this. We're going to talk about that in just a second. It is typically over in about a day and a half. I think it's about an eight-hour or so layover. When I did it, our layover was at Yetna Station, which happens to be the first checkpoint on the Iditarod Trail. So here's my little story. I took off. I was running my typical race towards the back of the pack, just kind of tootling away down the trail. And I arrived into Yetna Station pretty late at night. Everybody was there before me. I was the Red Lantern participant at that point. And I do what I typically do on races. I methodically go about doing my chores and getting my dog settled down and rested. And I almost never go into the checkpoint to to sleep or to party or to drink a beer or anything like that. I typically hang out right next to my dogs. And this is the coolest part of the story. So I lay down against my sled. My back is against the sled bag. I throw my big heavy parka over my head, hoping to get 
a couple of hours rest during this mandatory. I was doing it as a qualifier, so I could not have any help. After a couple hours, I took my parka off of, off of my head and I looked up and it was snowing. And one of the most magnificent Northern Lights displays I'd ever seen in my entire life was happening right above my head. And if you've never seen the Northern Lights in Alaska, in the middle of nowhere, on a frozen riverbank in February, it is breathtaking. And what was the coolest part of this is I was the only one out there during this light show. Everybody else was asleep or partying or whatever they were doing up at the roadhouse. And I will never forget that experience. I talk about that all the time when I share mushing stories with, with kids at presentations and all that, because anybody will tell you they have a couple of things on their bucket list when they come to Alaska, whether they're mushers or not. Number one is to see sled dogs or Iditarod. Number two is to see the Northern Lights. And number three is probably to see a moose or a polar bear or an igloo or something crazy like that. <laughs> so I checked off two or three things off of my bucket list in just a couple of minutes, including the Iditarod qualifier that still stands to this day all these years later. It is one of my few qualifiers that I did finish. So anyway, that's my story of the Goose Bay. It is a fast race. It is a fun race. It's got such a variety of trail conditions. You have winding hills and tight trails and river running and slotting down sides of cliffs hitting the river and overflow and ice chunks and all sorts of things. It's going to be a blast. And uh, this race is actually happening tomorrow as we're recording on Friday night. So that's my little recap or preview, if you will, of the Goose Bay 150. Tony, who's involved in the race this year? Um, we've got a healthy roster for one of the smaller races that doesn't have a lot of fanfare. You've got the Barrington twins are going to be in there, several Reddingtons, uh, Ryan Reddington being the top one that's going to be running, as well as his niece and nephew, Ellen and Isaac Reddington, are both going to run, I guess, as junior mushers. So that's pretty exciting. I'm really enjoying seeing these races embrace the teenagers and bring them in, um, you know, when they can't bring a junior race with their, their main race and just glomping them in. Uh, Ellen and Isaac are both proven mushers, so it's not like they're letting just some kid with a bunch of dogs running down the trail. Uh, we also have Jesse Downey, Hunter Keith, again, running Reddington dogs. Lots of Reddingtons and lots of Reddington dogs in this race. We've got Gabe Dunham. Uh, just a, a few names that I think they're running their first ever race with Shameless Husky's Kennel. Uh, which is Kathleen Frederick's kennel, I believe, but she's got her handlers running. Um, just, it's it's not a who's who of mushing, but this is kind of the future of mushing. Hopefully, there's some names that I'm hoping that we'll see uh, in the future continue to improve and to run some of the bigger races. And they'll run out to, I believe it's Talavista Lodge and uh, have their little party there or at least their nap time there and then they'll head back in and 
it's going to be fun. I think they believe that they're going to have finishers throughout the morning on Sunday, and then they'll have a finishers dinner there at the bar uh, at 6 p.m. Fans are welcome. You do have to pay to play there, but uh, definitely go out and cheer them on. They take off at noon tomorrow. Tony, I have to amend my story. I remember the rest of the story, as we say. (laughs) And you know what's very interesting? And this is going to really go into what we just talked about on the quest, about the machine of these big races. Mm -hmm. When I was in the Goose Bay 150, I was running with uh, Monica Zappa and Lisbeth Norris. We were at the back of the pack, uh, the three of us. Mm -hmm. And it was late on Sunday afternoon. And the three of us were running together as uh, the back of the Packers typically do. And all three of us took a wrong turn. And we were in the middle of the, I think it's called the big swamp. It's the big lake side of the swamp. And we were just kind of running around in circles for hours. The, if I remember correctly, one of the race marshals came up and said, Hey, do you guys know where you're at? And, you know, they sort of pointed us in the right direction And we got back on track and on your way back, you're going up these hills, which are very close to the Reddington Kennel. It's just these up and down, pretty decent size rolling hills. And about that time, Monica and Lisbeth had much faster dogs than I do. They took off towards the finish. And I remember being in last place. I was still the Red Lantern winner or holder (laughs) at that point. And this was not in February. It happened to be on St. Patrick's Day weekend. So Sunday was St. Patrick's Day. And I came in as the Red Lantern winner. And they <laughs> did have they did have a dinner, you know, the whole shebang, St. Yep. Patrick's Day dinner, the corned beef and the cabbage and all of that. They held up the banquet, the little finisher's dinner for me <laughs> to finish. And I thought that that yep. was so cool. Everybody waited around. I believe the whole crew, you know, first place down. And Mm -hmm. it was a very small field then. I mean, maybe 10 people ran that race at that point. But everybody was there. And it made me remember what we've always talked about, the finisher's banquet at Iditarod, how they'll come out and greet that last place finisher and welcome them in and have them come in at the banquet and all that. That's what that was on such a small mom and pop race mm-hmm. that's ran by the folks that put on that bar, that put on that fancy bar, fancy anyway, uh, St. Patrick's <laughs> day dinner. And it's such an experience. Yeah. It was my first qualifying race. I've raced all over the country for, for many, many years, but that race has such a special place in my mushing memory because of the hospitality that they put forth. And I think that's what mushing needs more than anything, whether we have pro-am or uh, uh, you know, rookies versus veterans or whatever we've talked about. And if we're not making any sense, go back and listen to our Yukon Quest 550 episode and <laughs> you will hear what I have to say. But that's exactly what mushing needs. Do you agree that hospitality? Oh, totally. You know, yes, it is competitive and yes, there are clicks and yes, there's backbiting like any other sport, but at the end of the day, everybody comes out, you know, and cheers it up, cheers you on. You all did something together, even though separate that 
not everybody gets to do. So it's, it's always, it's a different kind of sport where you do believe that the camaraderie is real. Um, and that, you know, it's such a, it's such a small community. It's a big community, but it's small. And that's, it, it's got kind of like that whole small town feel where everybody knows everybody. And, and yeah, that means they know your business and yeah, there's going to be gossip. But at the end of the day, you have this community that cares about you and, and celebrates your wins, even if that means the win is a Red Lantern. The Red Lantern isn't something to be embarrassed by. It was a joke when they first started handing out Red Lanterns, but now it's one of the most coveted awards that any musher can get. Yeah, I'm looking at our trophy case, or, or on our trophy case, we have three Red Lanterns, Tony. I have that one from the Goose Bay, uh, Nicole has one from the Willow Jr. 100, which is also going on right now. And she has a red lantern from the Junior Iditarod. And when she, quote unquote, won or received that red lantern for the Junior Iditarod her first time, we both said, we're going to do whatever we can possibly do to not collect that fourth red lantern. And, and I did it in my Goose Bay. And of course, she did it there in Junior Iditarod. And she has run a qualifying race since then. She ran Junior Iditarod the second time. And guess what? She didn't get the Red Lantern. She came in the middle of the pack. <laughs> and as, as a young teenager, and we're going to talk about the uh, Junior Iditarod in, in the coming weeks. And we're going to promo it here at the end of this show. The it, It's a celebrated award if, if you will kind of celebrated and not but you don't want too many of them on your trophy case that's for sure i don't know i mean i believe it's perry salmonson who is a two-time red lantern winner and he used to have it on his dog truck so <laughs> yeah i i think i think they lived in willow because i remember seeing that truck that i don't remember the year but it said like i don't know 1989 Red Lantern recipient and I did a rod and they had that as a, as a painting or as a decal on their door and they were <laughs> proud of it. I don't know if it was a secondhand truck or not, but it's still making its way around in, in just the last couple of years. It's still out there. Yeah. I'm not sure when Perry was the Red Lantern. I want to say it was the the eighties or the nineties. I, I should know this because they live down here and uh, I see him all the time at Home Depot, but um, it, it always cracked me up because he had it on his little his little business cards and everything. He was dang proud of that Red Lantern. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, the belt buckle is is uh, is coveted, as Alex used to say on this show all the time. And I don't know when this number is going to be passed over, if it ever is. But he used to always say that more people have summited Everest than have finished Iditarod. Mm -hmm. And I assume that that's still a, a standing uh, oh, yeah. record. So yeah, Red oh, yeah. Lantern or not, that uh, that belt buckle and that Red Lantern are highly coveted. So before we preview our upcoming episodes, you listed a lot of names that a lot of people have heard of, especially here on our previews when we talked about the Connect 200 and the Copper Basin and some other races we covered who are your picks? And I don't have the list here, so I'm just going to go with yours, and I bet that they're the same because they have been the last few times. Uh, I'll go with Ryan Reddington is probably the, the odds-on favorite to win this one. I'm not sure what his plans are as far as what kind of race he's running, if this is just a 
get the, the wiggles out of his dog since they traveled from the lower 48. Um, but I assume he's going to be right there in front. Uh, I'll give uh, I'll give a shout out to Hunter Keith. I think he's got a really good chance. He's running Ramey and Barb's dogs and has been for a few years. And then what the heck? We'll we'll say the Barrington twins because we know that they're going to finish together if at all possible. So I'll go with Christy and Anna. And before we close, you promised our listeners you were going to talk about the scary tree. Oh, yes. Scary tree. Scary tree. <laughs> that That is an interesting story. Uh, scary tree is a very uh, memorable, if you will, point on the trail, especially if you're leaving on the Iditarod Trail from Willow, the Willow Restart. Uh, when you're heading down across all of the lakes from the restart, uh, about 12 or so-ish miles, I guess it is, you hit Corral Hill, uh, a, a very infamous spot on the Iditarod Trail. A lot of photographers and maybe even you have been there at the base of Corral Hill nope. on a time or two. Nope. <laughs> Typically, we'll have some very interesting crashes there from mushers, whether they're highly experienced or not. It's not too terribly of a big hill, but it's, it's an interesting hill as you hit the river. So as you fall down, and I say fall loosely... <laughs> As you fall down Corral Hill, you hit the Big Sioux River and you take the Sioux River for several miles until on the right, there is sort of an abutment or sort of an outcropping or a peninsula or whatever you will call it there before you make a hard right as you work your way towards the Yetna River. And in mushing lure right there at this outcropping, was a very scary looking tree. Think about a Tim Burton type tree used to hang there over the river. <laughs> and it's interesting because any musher that has ever been down that section of trail knows exactly where scary tree is. And they'll say, hey, I have cell service until scary tree, or I'm snacking my dogs at scary tree. And they talk about it as if it's a waypoint on a map. And when you're out there, you're constantly looking for this spooky, scary tree. And I remember the first time I ever mushed out on the river. We took a, my first big time uh, training run in Alaska. I was working with a, a local, uh, a neighbor friend of ours, kennel. And we said, okay, we're going to run to Yetna as a training run. It's a 40 mile run or whatever. And I've told some portion of the story. He left me at the, at the Yetna and I, I ended up in a neighborhood <laughs> and, and it took me till 4am to make it home. And I was supposed to be home at, at midnight. But anyway, he said, we are going to stop and snack at Scary Tree. So I'm mushing along. He's well ahead of me. I'm way behind him. We leave from Willow Lake where the, um, the restart happens. And he's, and I'm looking at my watch or GPS or whatever I have at that time. And he says, okay, it's about 18 miles or whatever it is, uh, down the trail. And he says, look up to your right and you're going to see the big scary tree. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and I don't see it anywhere. And I'm thinking, where is this just some kind of, you know, superstition or, old wives tale or whatever, where is this big spooky tree? And I never found it. And I remember 
pulling out my iPhone. And back then it was like iPhone five or six. I mean, they didn't have coverage for beans. And I remember pulling (laughs) out my iPhone and I still had coverage. And I thought, okay, this has to be close. And then I mushed a little bit down. I don't know, maybe just uh, several hundred yards. I looked at my phone again because I wanted to text Michelle, who was still living in Colorado at the time, and Paul, my partner, and say, okay, I made it to Scary Tree. Where the heck are you? And just like that, uh, cell service (laughs) dropped. And I looked to the right, and you could see the remnants of this old tree where it had fallen down. And in Alaska, guys, if, if you're not familiar... A lot of our rivers are uh, glacier-fed or really fast-fed rivers, in particular the Sioux uh, Yetna confluence, if you will. And there'll be these huge trees. I'm talking full trees with with root bulbs and everything that sort of just erode into the river and work their way down. And I always wonder, and this is sort of the, the story part of it, there is a tree that's in the riverbed now. And I always wonder if that spooky tree there is scary tree because it's not there anymore. But now I guess, and it's been a couple of years since I've been down that way, I guess they had put up a sign or planted a tree or put a tree up with a bunch of dog booty decorations or something because that is sort of the mushing lore that everybody knows where this is. Yeah. And, and you, should, uh, you should kind of remember it as you work your way past because it's about halfway from from Willow to Yetna, which is that first checkpoint that uh, I talked about earlier in the in the show here where I saw the Northern Lights. So that is my mushing story about Scary Tree here on tonight's podcast. Yay! Yay! I could tell yeah, stories. Yeah, no, if you, if you, oh, I could tell stories for days. If you go days. on Twitter, you can, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I keep jumping on top of you. Um, if you go on Twitter, Meredith Mapes actually posted a picture of what the scary tree uh, spot looks like now. And it, it's like you said, it's got a big green sign that says scary, old scary tree on it. And then they've got um, kind of like a milepost sign like you saw in MASH, the TV show where it points all different directions and how many miles to different spots along the trail system. So it was not as scary as I expected. So yours makes much more sense with the whole Tim Burton feel, but um, it, leave it to mushers. You know, once once the spot is named, it's named for life. It doesn't matter what grows up in its place. Yeah, and it, it, re, it reminds me of Old Woman Cabin in Iditarod. That's, that's mm-hmm. sort of the vibe I got from my mushing friends back then. And, you know, when you're a brand new wet behind the ears Alaskan musher. And I say Alaskan in quotes because I thought I was a pretty dang good musher (laughs) in the lower 48. And we talked about this on the Testamina. I thought Mm -hmm. I knew what I was doing. I've been doing this since 1994. (laughs) But Alaska is a whole different animal. And I know we've talked a lot about our friend Jonathan Hayes when he came up from Maine Mm -hmm. to Alaska to to chase uh, his Iditarod dream with the Copper Basin and the Willow 300, he will tell you that Alaskan mushing is a whole different animal. And uh, that uh, that scary tree story is definitely one of those things that you will remember, like a lot of those Iditarod guys remember with, with the blowhole and the safety roadhouse and the old woman cabin and all these 
kind of historic mm-hmm. moments on Iditarod Trail. So that is my story on the Goose Bay. I'm, I'm excited that this episode went a little bit longer than that because I don't often get to tell these mushing stories. Often my job is to be, you know, the musher perspective, the analyst portion of this, the rules type guy. But uh, every now and then I get to tell a story or two. And I think that's what makes this podcast special. I'm sure you would agree. Oh, yeah. No, I love when you get to tell a story because I'm just telling stories second and third hand, but you've got the real deal going on. Right, for sure. So we talked about what's upcoming. We are going to do tonight, as a matter of fact, the Yukon Quest uh, in Canada. We're going to talk about that. And then coming up Monday, we have a very special guest. Uh, we have none other than Barb Reddington going to be on our Junior Iditarod preview show. And I reached out to her on social media just this past week. And I said, hey, I would love to have you on the show. And she messaged me within like two minutes and said, I would love to. How can I be on? What can we do? Let's arrange this. And we had to do it quick because I'm headed to Seattle on Tuesday morning until Friday. And I know that the uh, the race starts next weekend. So we really only had a day nope. to get. No, it's the following weekend. Following weekend. Yeah, oh, you've good. Got, you've got time. We have time. So uh, we we had to do it quicks before I made my next trek down to Seattle, but it's going to be a a pleasure to have her on. I don't think she's ever been a guest on. And I know that you commented just the other night to me on Facebook, Tony, we're, we're always joking that one of our fans had, had uh, sent over a comment or a review or whatever that says, Tony knows everything, but you're going to argue with that listener and you're going to say, that Barb Reddington knows everything. Is that right? Barb is actually my encyclopedia. If I don't know where to find something, I typically go ask Barb. And then if I make the mistake and I think I know what I'm talking about, Barb is the first one to, to correct me. So uh, Barb Barb takes pride in the Iditarod and especially the junior Iditarod. She has such a heart for that, that particular race. Um, she's very proud of her um, family's history, though, you know, she's technically married into the Reddington, Reddington family. She is a Reddington, in my opinion, and I think everyone's opinion. She is just a wealth of knowledge on uh, mushing history, especially I did her on history, and I just adore her. I met her, um, I met her online, I don't even know how many years ago, but uh, the last Testamina 200, I think it was, she actually came up to me and she was like, are you Tony Ryder? And I said, yeah, you're Barb Reddington. And now I feel very, very shy. And, and she just came up, can I give you a hug? And, and it's just been a really great friendship ever since. I look forward to seeing her at all the different Iditarod events that we were at together. So I'm really excited to, to sit in and maybe jump in every now and again on this interview. And she is such a nice lady. I know Michelle had Mm -hmm. mentioned uh, on a previous episode how we always run into the Barrington twins at the local grocery store, Fred Meyers. I mean, it seems like they're there every time that we're (laughs) shopping there. Uh, They're they're there as well. And Barb is the same way. She is always there when, when one of us is there. And she always has the time to come up and say hello or to talk a little bit about mushing or 
what the mm -hmm. recent news is in the sport. But yeah, she truly is the uh, encyclopedia, at least of uh, Iditarod knowledge, if not all of mushing knowledge. And you, you sort of alluded to it just a second ago, Tony, that she is married into the Reddington family. So for people that are new to the sport, everybody knows who the Reddingtons are. Obviously, Joe Reddington, the father of Iditarod. But where does she fit in into the family? Who did she marry into? And what is sort of that uh, that bond that they have right now? Sure. So Barb is Joe's daughter-in-law. She married his son, Ramey. Um, she has, I believe it's two sons. Um, she has Ryan and she has Robert, both of whom have uh, run the Iditarod several times. She also has her stepson. Which one did I say? Ray. Right. <laughs> now I'm going to get confused here. Uh, Ray, who uh, his children are the ones uh, running the Goose Bay. So it, they're not quite as big and convoluted as the Mackey family, but that's about where I stopped trying to remember who is who on the Reddington family tree because it, they have a legacy all their own, not only in the sport, but in Alaska itself. Um, the Reddingtons are very, very much loved within our community uh, as a whole of Alaska, not just the Iditarod. And those names that you named, Ray, Ryan, Robert, Ramey, uh, all those R's, uh, they've all uh, <laughs> done Iditarod and, uh, and mm -hmm. finished. Uh, are, did it, has any of them won it? I don't believe so, right? There's never been a Reddington first into Nome. Um, I think the closest that's come now is Ryan, but I would have to actually go back in the archives and see if Joey or Ramey actually uh, came closer in those early races or not. Well, hey, we'll just we'll just ask Barb when we have her on the show on Monday. There we go. So, She'll know because she knows everything. That's she right. She literally knows everything. I don't. Right. So, <laughs> so guys, there is reason enough to hit that subscribe button and make sure that you are there for that interview with Barb Reddington on our Junior Iditarod preview. And we're going to end on that note because we still have a lot of work to do here. And on behalf <laughs> of my co-host, this is Robert for Mushing Radio. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.